1: time period we're living in is a prof- there's a profound experience of loss loss of physically being able to be next to each other we have loss of opportunities we have the, there's loss of life and for me what is underneath the experience of loss are feelings of sadness helplessness anger and disappointment if there's a time to be gentle with yourself and to be gentle with people that you're sheltered with or your loved ones Boy, is this time ever a time to be gentle and compassionate.
2: Hello and welcome to the Not Perfect Podcast. My name is Poppy Jamie, a recovering perfectionist and the founder of award-winning mindfulness app, Happy Not Perfect. Like the app, this show is about hitting pause and taking time to look after our mind and soul. In this series, I explore how we can make life better in 2020 how can we reduce stress enjoy life bounce back from setbacks and get in flow my guests will be sharing their expert advice and i hope you join me on the journey our theme music is courtesy of mindstream visit mindstream.com to learn more about how their music and environments help you sleep relax focus and move or find their music on any streaming platform let's crack on with the show This is an extremely special episode of the Not Perfect podcast because we are recording live with the Arts Club. And I'm delighted to welcome a guest who I'm fully obsessed with, Dr. Joan Rosenberg. Welcome in all, and she's recording from LA.
1: Yes, thank you so much. I'm uh, both honored and humbled.
2: So Joan is one hell of a woman. Not only is she a world leading psychologist, TED speaker, but she's also the author of the book, 90 Seconds to a Life You Love. And I finished this book last week and it has massively reassessed how I understand my emotions. And I can't wait to dive into it here. So like with all my interviews, I start with the first three questions. Joan, what is your favorite quote at the moment?
1: Yeah, I, I have to drag it out, but it's the one by Viktor Frankl. It has to do with our ability to choose our attitudes. He was—he uh, wrote the book, Man's Search for Meaning, and he lived through the Holocaust. And one of the things he talked about was the important—the the one thing that couldn't be taken away from a human being was their ability to choose their attitude. And that that really is my favorite quote, especially given the times we're in right now.
2: What's a life lesson you've been reminded of recently?
1: Oh, this is hard too. <laughs> at, the, at the age of 24, um, a relationship I was in ended, which meant that I had to leave where I was living and uh, there, I was working at the university at that point and there were three positions that were cut at the university, one of which was mine. So I was without home, I was without relationship, and I was without work—the three most important ways we identify ourselves. And at that point, uh, m- my sense was that security was an illusion. It was—it was, it was uh, it, it fleeting, if you will. And—and and this notion that anything could happen at any time. And I'm—I'm I'm, again, I'm quite reminded of that in this day and age when we're—we're we're any so many things have been taken from us just in a flash. So. It's a, It was a hard lesson then. It's a hard lesson now.
2: And then, what was your perspective from going through that lesson? In and how did you come through it?
1: Uh, I. Uh, well, how did I come through it? Uh, it was a period. that was a downturn in the economy, so it actually took me uh, two years to find work. Uh, and I, again, I've I found a place to live, and and but I I was doing odd jobs. I was. <laughs> I was painting homes <laughs> that was finding whatever I could find to, to do. So probably it made me a little bit scrappier and uh, it made me sensitized to this whole idea of, of vulnerability. Mm. Um, and so there were really important learnings that I, it, it probably helped me not take things for granted in life. Um, so I, I had that cold water splashed on me early and as a result, I I'm quite grateful for for the the experiences, the people, the things that I have, and so it it uh, it was something that was hard 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 won or hard learned, but but it stayed with me throughout life.
2: Thanks for sharing that. How do you define happiness? Uh, inner peace is
1: really how I define happiness. It's a it's a sense of being congruent on the inside, and I think we when we feel that sense of inner peace or, or the kind of what I would describe as being comfortable in our own skin, then then we have that inner peace, and it's a sense of contentment. It's just, it's 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 in a nice even place.
2: I would wholeheartedly agree, um, and your book very much um, is an incredible signpost to to being able to unlock more inner peace for sure. Um, so I want to get straight into it, because what you have developed in the Rosenberg Reset is genius. I love the alliteration, Rosenberg Reset, really, kind of, really helps me remember it. Um, what is it, and how does it work?
1: I need a touch of a backstory on this to, for me to okay. actually describe it. The, I, so I had two big questions that I, I wrestled with, or I was challenged by throughout life. And, and the, back, the quick backstory is that I started out as a very shy and sensitive child and also felt very different and felt like I didn't fit in. Didn't understand it, but look over my peers, they're laughing, they're together, they belong, they seem so confident. And I just didn't have any of that. So the big question, the first big question that happened for me is, how does one develop confidence? And then as I got into my professional life, and started working with clients, the, the second question emerged, and that, that was, uh, what makes it so difficult for people to handle or experience and move through unpleasant feelings? And it turns out that the answer to the second question, because I was percolating on that for so long, that question, that answer to the second question answers the first question about confidence. So the Rosenberg Reset came about because I was really trying to understand what made it so difficult for people to experience and move through unpleasant feelings. So what it is, it's, a, it's, a, it's an easy formula to help people stay present to, the, to those feelings. And the, it, we do pleasant ones pretty well. So it's the unpleasant ones that we move away from. But what I want people to understand is the, the unpleasant ones are there for protective purposes, So they're actually good good feelings, if you will. They're good for us. We just don't like the way we experience them. So the Rosenberg Reset is a formula of one choice, eight feelings, 90 seconds. The one choice is to choose into awareness, not avoidance. And you can think about all the different ways we can avoid. So uh, shopping, uh, substance use. uh, Social media. Social media, pornography—I mean, with the addictions, right? We we can go on and on and on in terms of the number of different ways we distract. In fact, I, I think of having feelings about having feelings about having feelings as a distraction. Mm-hmm. So that's that's avoidance. So if I'm angry, that I'm sad—that's avoidance. My effort is to help people stay present and aware of what they're experiencing. So the idea, the one choice is to be as aware of and in touch with as much of your moment-to-moment experience as possible. So choose awareness, not avoidance.
2: So what are the eight unpleasant emotions? What are the unpleasant emotions we try and avoid?
1: For The ones that I've articulated are sadness, shame, helplessness, anger, vulnerability, embarrassment, disappointment, and frustration. So the big question is, why these eight? And it's why these eight, because they're the most common, everyday, spontaneous reactions to things not turning out the way that we perceive we need or the way we want. So anxiety is not on that list. fears not on that list. Guilt is not on that list. Unworthiness is not on that list. There's a lot of things that are not on that list for, for very clear reasons.
2: I was fascinated in your, in your book when you went into how we all use anxiety way too much. We'll say, oh, I was just feeling really anxious. I was feeling really anxious. And actually, it is just an avoidance of one of these eight unpleasant emotions. Why is that the case? Why do we, use, why do we overuse anxiety to describe essentially an, another emotion?
1: I, I, I think we both misuse and overuse the words fear and anxiety. And, and so the, the, if you don't mind me walking through that, I think that'll explain it pretty clearly. And it relates to what we're all going through right now, too. Uh, fear, from my perspective, and actually it's the way psychology defines it, is danger in the moment right now. So if you're resourced, right? So if you have shelter, if you have food, if you have financial resources, if you have social connections, all those different kinds of things, you're not in fear. I mean, is it legitimate to think about fear? Yes. But if you're not in danger right now, please don't use the word because you activate that state in you when you choose the language that you choose. So I don't want fear activated in you. So the next most logical then that we talk about would be anxiety. And anxiety psychology looks at as uh, that worry or concern over a bad event happening in the future. Well, again, makes sense. But if I were to ask 10 people what they meant by anxiety, I would get 10 different answers. So people use the word anxiety as a it, because it keeps it in a cloud someplace above us, right? Where we really don't have to experience what's truly going on. And so when I was working with clients, I would have to dig in to understand what they meant by anxiety. And more often than not, there, were, there was one feeling that would come up or one feeling state that would come up. And then I realized that it also acted as a cover for all the other unpleasant feelings that I've just mentioned. So vulnerability is the is really the next most logical one. And in this time, if we make it relate to, to what's happening right now, it, it has to do with our vulnerability. Is this this concern or fear that are a concern that we might get hurt or an awareness that we could be hurt? And that's how I think about vulnerability. So anxiety tends to cover the experience of being vulnerable and if it's not vulnerability, then you're using anxiety. Most people are using anxiety to cover the other seven unpleasant feelings.
2: Do you think it's actually healthier if we started actually really consciously exchanging the moments we say, I feel really anxious, to actually exchange it to, I'm feeling quite vulnerable right now?
1: Absolutely. There's a, because there's a, if you even test playing with the words in your own mind, I think you'll notice that to use the word vulnerable you actually your, your nervous system calms a little bit. It feels yes. more ac- it feels more accurate and because it's more accurate there's a calming experience on the inside.
2: <laughs> you're so right. You know, for example, when I was thinking about times I felt anxious, you know, if you were ever doing any like public speaking or whatever, really you're just feeling deeply vulnerable.
1: Right, exactly. And and so so here's the secret key. So, so if I were to have everybody to uh, imagine that they, were, they had a piece of paper in front of them, and on, one si- on the left side of the paper, they put the word vulnerability, and on the right side of the paper, they put the words uh, sadness, shame, helplessness, anger, embarrassment, disappointment, frustration, then the way you handle vulnerability is to know that you can experience and move through those, those other seven feelings on the right side of the page. That's the secret to vulnerability. And, and when we, that I talk about in the book, uh, vulnerability that we all experience, That we're, this notion that we're all vulnerable all the time. And, and again, this time of COVID is a perfect example of that, right? Uh, all of a sudden, worlds got turned upside down in a flash. So that's the vulnerability I'm talking about. The, with, with with that I call non-conscious vulnerability. But when we choose to be vulnerable, we're at our greatest strength. And how do we, again, in both cases, how do we handle the vulnerability by knowing we can experience and move through those other seven feelings?
2: So let's talk about how right. does one move through it without panicking, and retreating, and trying to avoid?
1: Right. So it's the one choice, eight feelings. now now the ninety seconds. ninety seconds is the kind of the the key for me around this. So the again, in trying to solve the question about what made it so difficult for people to move through unpleasant feelings, I, the neuroscience research that started to come out in the, in the early 2000s made a huge difference in my understanding. And one of the big things that is talked about in that literature is that most of us come to know what we're feeling emotionally through bodily sensation. We, we know it in our body first, and it, we come to know it through bodily sensation. So the best example or an easy example of that is a uh, we feel the heat in our neck and into our face when, when we're embarrassed. Somebody else might see the redness, but we feel the sensation of heat kind of running into our, in, in those areas. That was the first thing. And then what dawned on me is that it wasn't that we didn't want to feel the whole range of what we felt. I think we all actually want to feel the whole range of, of what we feel because that, that helps us feel more alive. And it's actually a key to authenticity and to genuineness. And because when we cut off 50% of what we feel, then we're not being genuine. We're not being authentic. So the, the second thing then was, all right, that what I became aware of is that what we wanted to avoid was the bodily sensation that helped us know what we were feeling emotionally. Not that we didn't want to feel it. We didn't want to feel the bodily sensation that helped us know. And so the 90 seconds part is Dr. Jill Bolte-Taylor, Harvard-trained neuroscientist, wrote a book called My Stroke of Insight. And in that book, she makes the observation that when a feeling gets triggered, there's a rush of biochemicals into our bloodstream that activate bodily sensations. And then they flush out of our bloodstream in roughly 90 seconds. So the key here is for someone to be able to stay aware and stay present to what they're feeling, especially when it comes to unpleasant feelings, is to know that all they have to do is to ride short-lived, so up to 90-second bodily sensation waves. And what I make uh, at the point in the book over and over is that it's one or more. It's not just one wave. So I want you to surf as many waves as you need to surf from an emotional standpoint, these bodily sensation waves, so you can stay present to what you're feeling. And, and so the, the one choice is awareness, eight feelings I've talked about. And then the 92nd idea is that it's... So, and the premise is, in the, the overall premise of the book is if you can ride one or more short-lived bodily sensation waves of one or more of eight unpleasant feelings, You can pursue anything you want in life.
2: Okay, so this is really interesting. So just kind of like breaking it down slightly, your example of feeling really embarrassed, staying with that kind of like feeling really like hot and like acknowledging your embarrassment, knowing scientifically that it is just a, a super temporary experience.
1: Yeah, feelings are temporary yes, they're transient. They don't, they don't stay. We have the experience that they linger, but, but they actually don't.
2: So what, what is that experience then? For example, let's say you get broken up with and you're, it, it's like you can't get rid of the heartbreak and it doesn't matter. Uh, <laughs> and I, your brain I'm just... <laughs> in, I understand that. Yep. So, yep. so what's happening there?
1: So what's it? So there's, there's, there's three things. I, I outlined three things in the book and, and What I talk about there is any time we repeat certain thoughts or repeat memories, then everything that's associated with those thoughts or memories comes back. So if there are certain feelings that are associated with those memories, then you're going to activate, you're going to fire off in your body once again, the feelings that are related to the memory or to the thought. So then we get the quality that it lingers because we keep on repeating the thoughts or the memories. That's one. The second way it seems to linger is what scientists or psychologists call thought suppression. So it's the, I'm not going to think about that. And and by the way, it doesn't work. It actually makes you think about it more. So if I told you to not think of a, a zebra that has green and brown spots, you'd think about it because you have to think about the thing in an effort to not think about it, it doesn't work ever. It doesn't, actually, it doesn't serve us because then we keep re looping over the same thing. And, and I think the, the, the re looping is, it doesn't allow us to move through it. So the stiff upper lip just has us pushing stuff down. And I have a friend, so this is serious. I have a friend that says, What doesn't get emotionalized gets physicalized. Mm. So now we've got stomach distress or we have a pain in our neck or a pain in our back or something hurts or whatever it might be. So bec- why? Because we're suppressing the emotion. We're suppressing the energy that's tied to that. And what we want is we want it to be fluid. We want it to be moving through. And this is in many cultures as well. So it's I understand it. And what I can only do is encourage, let yourself move through it and express it.
2: So, do you have any tips that you could share about how you can stay riding that wave rather than immediately looking for something to avoid it with?
1: My thing is be curious. Just be curious about how, what, and where you're experiencing the feelings. And and so and so that you want to stay, you want to stay in a place of awareness, you want to stay in a place of curiosity, and you just want to notice. No judgment, just just be curious. And then notice where it's taking place, um, notice how it feels, and and then if you want to take it a step further, then uh, you can start to think about it and go, all right, what's this connected to? What what prompted my reaction like this? Is it related to just now or is it related to something in the past? Is it a one-time thing or is this a pattern? And then it's like this kind of quality of, well, what do we do with the feeling? Well, what we do with the feeling is you can uh, think about it, make decisions based on what you're experiencing. You can express, make a choice to express based on what you're experiencing, or you can take some kind of action if that's relevant. So, so it's it's those kinds of things that you can do you can do with the feeling once you experience it, but you have to stay present to it to do that.
2: I think this leads us nicely into faulty thinking patterns because I really enjoyed that chapter. It made me laugh a lot. (laughs) That's how I tend to play myself in many of those. Would you mind talking us through kind of what are the most kind of common faulty thinking patterns?
1: You know, well, it's psychology calls them cognitive distortions, So let's make it uh, more more muddled. I think in the field, there's at least 20 or more outlined. Personalizing is a so making things, seeing myself at fault for things that are not my fault. Uh, So we personalize things that actually don't even relate to us.
2: Self blame.
1: Yes, absolutely. And I'm not a big fan of blame. And the self or otherwise. The second, another one would be seeing a kind of an either or thinking, black or white thinking. Something is either this way or that way, and and there's nothing in between. And that's not true. You can always find something in between. Uh, minimizing the good, ma- uh, magnifying the bad. And then I in the book I talk about what I call bad emotional math.
2: Which I think was hilarious. So, so the
1: things like um, the the we because we somebody will say to me, um, "Well, I've always been that way," but but always has been does not equal what can be right. So, so they they've got the past equaling the future, but that's not accurate. The past equals the past, or one event happens. So, generalization is another faulty thinking pattern. The way I talk about it with bad emotional math is that one thing. People will say one thing equals all things. No, one thing equals one thing, right? So, so, there's there's just people get into a habit of thinking all sorts of ways that actually fosters depression and probably fosters more anxiety. So, because what ends up happening, you can you can think of a target like an archery target or a, a spider web, and you've got the circles. Each circle represents a faulty thinking pattern. Well, the more you, the more of them you do, the more you feel like you're trapped right in on the inside. So my goal really is to have people identify what those faulty thinking patterns are because then we can erase each line and now there's a way out. Um, and so, so the reason I don't want people thinking that way and using those kind of faulty thinking patterns is because it fosters depression and anxiety.
2: And why does it become so easy to have faulty thinking patterns where we self-blame or we think everything is going to be like this the whole time or we've bad emotional math or we overgeneralize? Like, why does it even happen?
1: You know, that that's probably more from childhood history, that that we we were brought up a certain way and we were treated certain ways and we, we in, incorporated or intro, in psychology introjected the, the experience and the, and the thinking. And then we start to lead our lives as if how we were treated initially, that those people were the authority on how we can be or who we really are. And, and so, again, part of the book is, is really helping people break free from, from those thoughts and those feelings from before. So that they can live lives they choose, not live lives that are they're defaulting to.
2: Yeah. So, what do you mean by living uh, a life of design, not default? Because you but use the, that the, line a lot. Yeah, yeah. Yeah.
1: No, I do. Yeah, I do. The the I want people to feel like they're at choice in life, and a, a, most a, a good many of us live life feeling like things are happening to us. And we stay, we're, we're dialed in mostly to the present, we're mostly reactive, so we're, and, and we're feeling like life is happening to us. And there's many people in the personal development indus- industry, if you will, or field, uh, and psychology that believe otherwise, and see life as happening for us. And, and, I, and I think of life, as ha- kind of life as having a life of its own. Uh, or life as being like, in some ways, like another person. That if I interact with it, then then I can grow with it and it can kind of grow with me. I, it, for me, then it's about design. So what does it mean to live a life of design? Well, you have a vision of what you would love for the future. And you stay dialed into that vision. And And there are some people that will say that's some of the hardest thinking you will do. Because now you're, now you're not living a life of reaction. And now you're not living... A life that is tied to condition and circumstance, you're, you're focused on what it is that you would love in life, and you're taking action steps to lead towards that. And then you understand, you know, I talk about resilient attitudes in the book, and so it ties in here with that. That the re- resilient attitude is every, uh, I see every life experience I go through as an opportunity to learn and to evolve. So, so if that's the case, now I'm interacting with life in a whole different way. And, and if I have things that I would love to have happen in the future, and I'm working towards those, now, now life is, I'm interacting with life in a whole different way. So it's a life of design rather than be, being caught up in the circumstances and the conditions that are taking place, and then feeling like I'm living a life by default. And now I'm into blaming and victim, feeling victimized and that sort of thing.
2: As you said, it's a differentiation from this kind of personal development movement that's very much kind of alive and kicking. And I think the that delicacy of the idea of kind of dancing along with life and having this relationship with life was just really beautifully put. And I really agree with that sentiment. Yeah. Um, in being a proactive member, like kind of almost being a proactive partner with life. The other thing I found very interesting, um, was the fact that, um, you explain how men and women process, um, emotions uh, differently. Uh-huh. Right. Um, I, w- I would love to know a bit more about that because I think many of us are, you know, probably with people more than we're used to because we're all at home. And I think communication, understanding how different people process emotions could be quite helpful.
1: Yeah, well, I mean when I, I think of when I and I work with a lot of couples too a lot, with a lot of men work with a lot of couples and what I certainly notice is that there's different patterns. I think of men as thinkers and doers. Uh, they would love to think through a problem and they're doers and they and they and they want they want to do everything they want to do the right thing for the right reason. Right? They want to support, they want to do all of that but there's a tendency then to miss the feelings. And and men are socialized so we have to pay attention to this part of it too. Men are socialized more often to, to suppress that. And again, my invitation is for men not to do that. It doesn't, it doesn't help them. That's why they have more heart attacks, right? Or, or heart problems. So there's, again, what doesn't get emotionalized, gets physicalized. So my suggestion to women, uh, when they're listening to men, still listen for the, for the feeling tone, but start by asking guys what they think. Uh, and then listen for the feeling tone and respond to the feeling tone after you hear the, what kind of what's, what's that mix is. Women, when they speak, often ask questions instead of make statements, which, by the way, confuses guys and drives them a little bonkers. So if you're in the habit of knowing what you really want and you actually have a statement to make instead of a question, Make the statement instead of asking the question, because asking the question confuses the guys. Uh, Give us an that's,
2: example.
1: Um, sure, easy easy one is I want to go eat Italian for dinner, and I look at you, my partner, and say, "What would you like for dinner?" <laughs> it's, I mean, super easy. Uh, I know I want Italian. Let me say I want Italian, right? So uh, 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 there's a great Italian restaurant around the corner. I want to go. I want to go there again, right? I could say that as opposed to just ask the, ask the question. That the, then the guy says, well, you know what? Um, I'd love to have some sushi. And now you're at odds. At, at, at sushi? Why did you say sushi? Now they're into an argument, right? It doesn't have to happen that way. So women, say what you want when you know what you want. Say what you mean. And make the statement instead of ask the question. So there's two other places this, this gets a little wonky in terms of the way men and women communicate. Men tend to hear feedback from women as criticism. So the moment the feedback hits, instead of it being information, the moment it hits the eardrum of the guy, it becomes criticism. Wow. It's rare that a guy would say no. Um, But so men have to learn how to sort that out and go, oh, the woman has my best intentions in mind. She's trying to give me information to work with, not criticism because the criticism then leads to the guy feeling bad and then it leads to the guy uh, having the sense that he is bad. So it's just it just leads down this path it's really horrible in the relationships. And then the flip side is guys when you're listening to women, women want their feeling I know you want to problem solve, but women want to have their feelings responded to. So the problem solve for you, is to respond to the feelings first. In fact, I would say that for both sexes, that the most effective way to feel heard and to feel listened to and to feel understood is that both partners respond to the feelings first.
2: Can you give us an example of responding to the feelings first? Like how would you communicate better when you're feeling emotional?
1: You, you, you're coming home from work and we're having this conversation about something that was very frustrating for you. And, and, it, and there's certain things that have to get worked out. And my tendency as a guy might be to respond would be to say, well, have you considered X, Y, and Z? Or why don't you do X, Y, and Z? And instead the response would be, wow, I get why that's leaving you pretty frustrated. Hmm. Or, geez, I can see how that's upset you. Mm-hmm. Something that simple makes a massive amount of difference. And now the, the problem solving can unfold naturally. Or then you can look at the guy and say, you know what? Thank you. Thank you for kind of acknowledging that. Let's figure out what I need to do. And now you get to the problem solve. So it's, the, the simplest way of remembering this is feelings first. You practice feelings first in your relationship, watch your relationship change just that quickly.
2: That's great. I feel like a lot of us will be practicing that trick. Just to move on to um, grief and just to discuss that in slightly more detail, because I think it's sure. highly relevant to what we're experiencing now. And you did, you recorded a really captivating video on it. And you were the first person to really identify that maybe the sentiment we're feeling right now. During this Corona change, is grief not anxiety? Perhaps. Um, would you mind expanding on that further?
1: Sure. I, yes. What 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 I got in touch with is, uh, you know, I we California sheltered in place pretty quickly, and so what I got in touch with early on was that this time period we're living in is a prof- There's a profound experience of loss, just profound losses. And the list is, would be too long to go to go on, but um, we have a we have loss of employment. We have so we have loss of wages, loss of work. We have loss of physically being able to be next to each other. We have loss of opportunities. We have the, there's loss of life. It's the loss of of uh, a predictable world as we knew it, right? I, I mean, the list just keeps going on. So for me. Not only is there that concern about our vulnerability, how we could get hurt, but it's it's just layered on top or fused throughout with this experience of loss. There's big celebrations happening in both Christian and Jewish communities right now, or and Muslim communities, I think too. It's like nobody can be with each other.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And for me, what is underneath the experience of loss our feelings of sadness, helplessness, anger, and disappointment. And it's also a time of, of shock where people feel kind of overwhelmed or dazed or confused. Or And when you come out of shock, you tend to have those feelings of sadness, helplessness, anger, or disappointment. It's like, let yourself just be present to those feelings. They're accurate. They're true. And, be, and it's like this, if there's a time to be gentle with yourself and to be gentle with people that you're sheltered with or your loved ones, boy, is this time ever a time to be gentle and compassionate.
2: Are there any practices that you do to kind of help remind yourself to remain compassionate? Because, you know, obviously you wrote this book before we knew anything Right. You know, we didn't know this was all going to unfold. And, you know, in your book, you write how kind of grief and loss can be so disguised. You know, we can think we can be thinking that we're feeling something else, but really underneath that feeling is all sorts of kind of grief and loss that we go through as human beings. Yeah, I'd love to know any practices that you engage in that help you remain compassionate to yourself.
1: I think the first is to help people understand uh, so that to lead towards the compassion is that and many times when you're using words like, but that I call grief signal words. Words like, um, if you're pessimistic, I think of that as a grief signal word. If you're sarcastic a lot, I think there's grief underneath that. Uh, sarcastic in a mean way, uh, it, it, I think there's grief underneath that. Uh, uh, jealousy, holding grudges, uh, bitterness. Uh, there's a there's I think 14 or 15 that I talk about in the book, mm. um, and I underneath every one of those to me is just grief sadness, helplessness, anger, or disappointment. So the first thing is to understand that when you're having a strong reaction and especially if the reaction is out of proportion to what's taking place in the moment, then then I would say probably there's some feelings of helplessness underneath that and it might be tied to something in the past. So you can you, the, the thing again this comes back to that awareness idea. so one of the ways I stay compassionate with myself, is to try to stay in awareness as much as I can, and and there are certain situations where I know I have tender spots, mm. right? And where where I boy this I, historically I will I will get a little reactive. I'm not a reactive person by nature, and but I know that I can be triggered. So those spots, those kinds of patterns, if you will, or life patterns, then I just it's like I go into it going all right, kind of check yourself here. It's like, you know that this can trigger you. So just like start slow, be gentle. Just, and, and so I, I will do self-talk as a, as a way to help me out in those kinds of situations. So one is staying in awareness. Another is, is reminding myself of gentleness. A third, or being aware of tender spots, um, speaking kindly. And, and, and if stuff gets really rough, I, or I, would, I wouldn't want to put it at the last, but I might reach out for help. And, and say, and hey, and look, call a friend and say, hey, check me on this.
2: You have a really great tip in the book about exchanging I for your name when you're talking to yourself.
1: Oh, right. Yes. Yes. I think, the, if I recall correctly, the work is by Ethan Cross, and and the idea is that you use your name as a way to help lead you to performing better in whatever the situation is so so it would be in my case it would be say hey joan you you got this just just chill you you know joan you can you can pull this off you've done it before you know go for it joan right so, so it'd be using my name but talking to me in the third person it, it does work uh in fact i think my understanding is the basketball player lebron james uses it it's, it's like you got this lebron go for it dude right So. Uh, so when what ends up happening is we get a little bit of psychological distance when we use our own name, and when if if I say I, sometimes the performance gets worse. So if you use the third, if you use your own name, then you get a little bit of psychological distance or distance, and uh, and then it helps you perform better. And you can think of using it like you would talk to kind of you'd give wise counsel to a friend. And, but instead the wise counsel you're giving is to yourself, your own
2: best friend. I love it. I used it yesterday and I was like, this is ah. such a good trick. Oh, good. good <laughs> Thanks good. Dr. Joe. <laughs> you're so welcome. <laughs> um, so before we open up to the questions that have been sent sure. through, I would love to um, ask you to finish um, the sentence. I start. Okay, sure. The first thing in the morning, I.
1: Uh, I express gratitude. Uh, I wake up, I'm grateful for, a, uh, I'm breathing. Um, so the first thing I do is, is express gratitude. The second thing I do is to grab a journal and write intentions and kind of who I want to be for the day.
2: Before I go to sleep, I... Same thing, <laughs> I express gratitude.
1: In this case, it's reviewing the day, uh, seeing where I where things went, I considered wonky or things that I considered wins, because uh, I think it's important to acknowledge the wins. And uh, and then ending with gratitude.
2: Best piece of advice I've been given is
1: very early on in my life, I was told to lead with my heart. It stayed with me. It's been a in fact, it actually moves me to tears a little bit to even say it. I've just lived with that mantra for years.
2: When I feel insecure, I one is to be gentle with myself. The second
1: is to reflect. The third is to turn to family or friends for help.
2: As I've gotten older, I've realized...
1: Life is about love, life is about connection, and life is about contribution.
2: Couldn't agree more. If he really knew me, you would know? Uh, You would know my
1: loving heart, you would know how much I love to serve, and you would know how much I love to laugh.
2: Oh, thank you. That's so... Brilliant! Um, so um, epic answers. Um, I'm just going to read out some of the questions that we've received. Um, um, someone asked, "In the heat of the moment, what are the best tools to identify the correct emotion and respond better?"
1: Uh, <laughs> do not open your mouth when you're in the heat of the moment and the anger is rising. <laughs> you 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 keep your mouth shut. <laughs> <laughs> just ride the ride the bodily sensation wave. Your mouth remains closed, and let the let the wave hit the intensity. Let it come down. Then you can speak. And by that time, hopefully, your thoughts will be engaged. And there's and when you speak, and there's there's such important things to talk about. Speaking up too. Um, when you speak, you only come from a positive, kind, and well-intentioned place. And just like just like leading with my heart is is or the leading with your heart is the uh, mantra for me. It's like one of the base guidelines I use or foundational guidelines I use is uh, everything comes from a positive, kind, and well-intentioned place.
2: That's a great, great, great advice. I've definitely fallen guilty of talking during the emotion wave. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Um, Next question. Um, What happens to our mental and physical health when we don't act authentically?
1: I think a lot of things happen. I think there's more fatigue. I think there's more anxiety. I I, I know there's more anxiety, and I don't even have a question about that one. Uh, there's probably more depression. You move to an experience of what I call the toxic emotions, where where again you're starting to feel the resentment and the anger and uh, bitterness and grudges and those kinds of things. But again, underneath that are the purer feelings. It's what I call disguised grief. Are those pure feelings of sadness, helplessness, helplessness, anger, and disappointment? So it compromises your energy, and it and um, you don't get the inner peace. So it's like it's I, it, it's amazing to me, and I it's, I I can't even I can't even express it more. And and how liberating being able to when you can when you know you can move through all of your feelings with ease, and you you can experience and express them. Uh, there's such an experience of authenticity, and that's where your conf- part of where your confidence comes from, and and there's just an, an ease on the inside. So anything that you do that moves moves you away from that is going to take you away from those things and compromise your energy and your one sense of well
2: being. Um, and another question we have time for: What would you advise to do when we can't sleep and our heads are full of anxious thoughts? <laughs>
1: One is, uh, stop using the word anxiety. So see if you can identify which of the other seven feelings you might really be feeling. If you're anxious, uh, one of the ways I talk about anxiety in the book is that it's unexperienced and unexpressed feeling. So notice whether you're trying to move away from an unpleasant feeling and whether that feeling actually is something that that is, in quotes, should be expressed, needs to be expressed, uh, and then with whom, et cetera. The second is deep breathing. So slow yourself down. Take uh, long, slow, deep breaths into your belly. Probably at least ten times, so that you kind of quiet your nervous system. And I would also say journal. It's a great idea to um, to get those I, those words out on paper, those thoughts on on paper. I think sometimes the what what I think is happening is that the brain is making an effort to remember what you're thinking about. So you keep going over and over it. Uh, if you just grab a journal and write that down, then the paper can hold it and, or your device can hold it and not your brain. And then you can go to sleep.
2: Brilliant advice. How can we find you, learn more about you and how can we find your book?
1: Uh, book, and to my knowledge, is pretty much anywhere you buy books. And you can find me pretty much on the internet. If you just type in my name, either Dr. John Rosenberg or John Rosenberg, then and my website is drjohnrosenberg.com. So, but you can find me those ways. Lots of stuff will pop up if you just type my name in, or you can go right to my website and there's a lot of stuff there as well.
2: Perfect. Um, and we will include everything in the show notes and, um, and on the Arts Club too. I just want to finish with a huge thank you to the Arts Club for for having us. Um, it's been such a delight and it's been so great to chat to you, Dr. Joan.
1: Like I said at the beginning, grateful and honored. Thank you so much.
2: that's it for today thank you for listening of course it would be amazing and very appreciated if you wouldn't mind hitting subscribe and sharing this podcast you can find me at poppy jamie on instagram dm me questions or any guest suggestions i'd love to hear from you and also if you have a moment, download happy not perfect it's my mindfulness app that helps you manage stress anxiety sleep and ultimately makes you feel happier every single day in less than five minutes. See you next time. Sending you lots of love and energy, till then.
0: Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too.